Good morning to each of you. It's good to see a full house today and to be gathered together on this particular Lord's Day, Lord's Day before what is commonly called Christmas Day. And with a simple question, what is the true meaning of Christmas? Or, uh, to put it another way, as was put to our children the other night, what does Christmas mean to you? And no, we're not going to sit around in a circle and discuss what that might mean to each one of us, because the Word of God is our final authority, and the Word of God tells us what Christmas is about. But the reality is, is that we can become distracted during this time of year with all the, the materialism, new gadgets that are out, the the, uh, the lights, the, 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 the twinkles, the crowds, the, the uh, road rage and parking lots at malls and all of these types of things. And we can become a little bit disenfranchised about what Christmas is really all about. There's so much chaos uh, around. I shared this story before, but years ago there was a ruler in Persia who was a good and a wise king and he loved his people and he wanted to know how they lived. And so he would dress as they did and would go and mingle amongst them without them knowing. And he went to the homes of the poor and um, no one whom he visited thought that he was the ruler. And one time he visited a very poor man um, and he lived in his cellar and he ate the same coarse food that this man ate. And he spoke cheerful, kind words to him. And then he left. Well, later he came back and he visited and he revealed his true identity. I am your king, he says. And the king thought the man would surely ask for some gift or favor, but he did not. Instead, he said this, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the same coarse food that I ate. You brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your gifts. To me, you have given yourself. And is that not what the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is he gave himself for you and for me? The Bible calls him, really, or he, he is the unspeakable gift. It's much better than any new gadget or any new coming out eye watcher or whatever the, the, next, the thing that's next on your list to acquire. We celebrate the great truth of what's called the Incarnation. Now, having spent the last several months in the book of Philippians and completed nearly a month on uh, that section in Philippians 2 in the early verses, verses 5 to 11, we are well rehearsed with what the Incarnation is here at this church. But I believe this is something important that we should drive home because there are so many cults built on the fact that questioning Jesus' deity, questioning the Holy Trinity, questioning the virgin birth. And so it's very important that we have these things ingrained in our minds that we might be orthodox believers. John 1.14, the word became flesh. Four simple words, packed full of meaning. Packed full of meaning that if you get those wrong, then you get everything wrong. The Word became flesh. The invisible became visible. The Creator entered His very creation. B.B. Warfield, probably the last great theologian at Princeton before it went completely liberal, over a hundred years ago, said the glory of the Incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man. 
one who is all that God is, and at the same time, all that mit- what man is. One on whose dignity, one on whose almighty arm we can rest, and whose human sympathy we can appeal. You know, Paul writing to, in uh, Galatians, he says that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman. So in God's plan from eternity past, he had always planned to send his son to redeem a fallen race, to redeem the elect as it were. And, and so when the fullness of time came, that is when Jesus came. Last, of course, I just mentioned we spent time in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Amazing truths. What defines Jesus Christ's humility is the fact that he put himself in a lowly servant role for the good of others. He completely emptied himself. He took the form of a bondservant, and he became obedient. He became the God-man. Full deity, complete humanity, wedded together into one single person. So that all these historical events concerning Jesus are vital to his person and his work in rescuing sinners who were ruined by Adam's sin. So let's turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at just verse 14 today, but I want to read the broader context for us. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, and he cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me, has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, 
He has explained him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these wonderful words in the Gospel of John. And Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to receive your truth, for your word is truth. We pray, Lord, that you would remove cares and remove distractions, that we might benefit from being here this day, that we might be those who grow in our sanctification, that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and maybe for some, that they would come from darkness into light, experiencing conversion and becoming new creatures in Christ. Have your way with each and every one today. Send the Spirit upon us, we beg, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, John begins his gospel by setting forth the Son of God as a distinct person, not just some essence. His personhood is emphasized in the text that I just read, if you were paying careful attention. He was the companion of God the Father. John goes back further than the other gospels. The other gospels begin with what? His birth, right? And so John goes back to the beginning, the very, very, very beginning before creation. John explains the incarnation in in verses 14 to 18 in different terms as he goes through it. And, And literally, it says that the word was towards God, facing God, a picture of two personal beings facing each other, engaging and communion. You might think of that deep, intimate fellowship of which we talked about, of which the Holy Trinity has, and the dynamic of the Trinity, three distinct persons, but yet one God. The deity of Jesus Christ is an essential part of the Christian faith, as I said, and if you get that wrong, you've got it all wrong. I don't care how much of the Old Testament dietary laws you know. I don't care how much of biblical history you may know. If you deny Jesus Christ as God, you cannot be a Christian. It's plain. It's simple. Jesus possesses the very incommunicable attributes that the Father does. Many of the same titles are attributed to Jesus as was attributed to the Father, the Alpha and the Omega, the Shepherd, the Holy One, the Judge. All of these things are attributed to Christ and to the Father. Our London Baptist Confession in chapter 2 on the Holy Trinity, it says, The Lord our God is but one living and true God, but God exists in three persons, each having a whole divine essence, yet the essence is undivided. So, as we think of Christmas, and as we think of uh, this time of year and celebrating the Son of Man coming to rescue sinners, as one of the songs we sung at the Christmas concert, the children's Christmas concert two nights ago, good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice, now you need not fear the grave, Jesus Christ was born to save. These are profound truths that come to us in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John has been described as is something as shallow as a small child can wade in and understand the truths that are there, but yet so deep that elephants can swim and actually drown, can actually drown in it because it's so deep. Profound, deep theological truths really throughout the entire Gospel here. But this idea of setting forth Christ's deity and his incarnation really comes to a a crescendo, as it were, in verses 14 to 18. And we'll be looking at those verses, but primarily focusing on verse 14. 
I will be going to those other verses as we go through today. So today, I want to focus on the glory of the Word becoming flesh. And the text in verse 14 breaks down nicely into three. The the chi, the word and there, and so we're just going to look at it in three simple points. And the first is just simply the Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. Now remember verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He mentions the Word three times there. We believe that's speaking of Jesus Christ, that he always was, he's pre-existent, and so forth. And then all the way down to, he doesn't mention the word logos again until verse 14. And then he comes back to that. The word was made flesh. The incarnation is set forth, as it were, by John, the gospel writer, in the most boldest, explicit way possible. I mean, it's just set forth in a a bold way. This is completely contrary to those that deny the Holy Trinity, to those that embrace the various cults that deny Christ as being the second person of the Holy Trinity, yea, very God. John does not just say he assumed manhood and he adopted a body, uh, you know, like as though, so that someone with a propensity to dualism would miss the point. Instead, John is not ambiguous. Yeah, he's even shocking with the expressions that he sets forth. And by the way, when you might say, well, wait a minute, the word became flesh. Isn't the flesh a bad thing? Yeah, Paul uses the word flesh, typically referring to our old nature, right? Walk by the spirit, not by the flesh, right? But here, the word actually does mean human flesh, and so Sark's in the original, and so it's perfectly legitimate. And in fact, John's uses of flesh are always in a positive light. And so the word became flesh, and don't think it's sinful flesh like what we have, the way Paul uses it. It's a very broad word. Now next, we need to see the word became flesh. What does that mean, to become The word in the original is a very um, common word that has a a vast array of definitions. Most commonly, to come into being, the process of birth, it can literally mean a birth. But one of the, I think this one is probably the fifth definition, to experience a change in nature and so indicate entry into a new condition. So it's not that he stopped being God and then became a man, It's that there's a change in nature that now he is the God-man because now his uh, humanity is wedded to his deity. Christ never stopped being the eternal Son of God. Hebrews 13.8 says very clearly that God cannot change. This word genomai is used in uh, Mark 1.17 where the early disciples are there with Jesus and Jesus says, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men, right? Did they stop being who they were? No. He's, he's making them into something else. So, so they are fishers of men. So he became flesh. He did not cease to be what he was before. There's been many who have misunderstood this doctrine of the divine and human natures being together in one person. The hypostatic union is the theological term that is used it's very important that we understand it in its fullest meaning. 
Some have claimed that Jesus did not actually have a human spirit. That is, that he was a divine spirit that was just inserted into a human body. Others, that his divinity entered the man Jesus for his earthly ministry only. Now, the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century actually addressed some of these things and formulated the hypostatic union really probably the best way since in the previous 400 years of church history. This is just one phrase. One and the same Christ, the Son, the Lord, the only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. So those are words that we don't always use all the time, but you can see what they're doing there. They're grasping at and they're defending the fact that you can't split the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. Just because he came to this earth, that you can't split those. He are both. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 2, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in what? Bodily form, right? The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus Christ. Two distinct natures, one divine, one human, without mingling or confusion between them. John himself, in his first letter, speaks of how he was an eyewitness of Christ. He says, what was from the beginning, this is 1 John 1.1, what we have heard, what we have seen, what we have looked at, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What is he saying there? He's, he's saying there that, no, he had a real body. <laughs> he, was, he was the real God-man. Real flesh, real blood, not a ghost. I touched him, I saw him, I heard him. That's why Martin Luther, the great reformer, could say the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into flesh, is beyond all human understanding. And it's true. That's why people stumble over this, because that's hard to fathom. Uh, it's, it's hard to fully understand. And secondly, the virgin birth and the incarnation are essential truths to be believed if you are a Christian. The virgin birth, we say, is an essential of the faith that you must believe. Paul quotes what probably was an early Christian saying in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, when he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, He who was revealed in the flesh, speaking of Christ, was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and then taken up to glory. And again, our confession of faith, and this is, I don't usually quote this this much, but uh, there's one that really needs to be quoted in in Christ the Mediator, chapter 8, paragraph 2. And I want to read this in its entirety Because I've been making a case, fumbling for words to formulate something that is contained succinctly in one paragraph, very carefully worded. And it states this, The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds all things and governs all things which He has made, did when the fullness of time was come, take unto him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived in the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. 
the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham, and David according to the Scriptures. Now, this is the statement that's very important, okay? That's setting forth all the truths leading up to the virgin birth and uh, the fullness of time, so that two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now, I realize that's a mouthful, but there's a lot of doctrinal truth contained in that one paragraph. And then there are a myriad of verses to support it. The theologian J.I. Packer has written, Jesus was not God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. In other words, when God humbles himself, takes the form of a bondservant, where we, we sent, emptying himself, we can tend to think that he's, he's removing some of himself, uh, but it's, it's a complete opposite. It's, it's he, he removes the prerogatives of asserting his deity and adds the human nature to that. So it's really one of addition, not subtraction. The baby born to the Virgin Mary was not simply half God and half human. He was the God-man. Christ is now two natures united in one person forever. We read in Hebrews in our scripture reading, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He had to partake of the same. In order to be a suitable sacrifice, a suitable substitute, to die in the place of sinners like you and me, he had to be made like us. That's why Hebrews 2.17 goes on, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, not only so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, which is wonderful things and things pertaining to God, but also to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to actually make that payment, to actually satisfy the just wrath of God against sin. He appeased that wrath. He satisfied that wrath and now intercedes for us and sympathizes with us. Packer is right when he says, the mystery of the incarnation is unfathomable. We cannot explain it. We can only attempt to formulate it. And I think he's right. So the word became flesh. Secondly, Jesus dwelt among us. Look at the text. He dwelt among us. What an amazing truth that the Son of God, has, who has always existed, but became a man at a certain point in time and entered into time and space with us. The invisible became visible when the fullness of time had come. This word dwelt, as many of you know, is the word, it's a verb form of tabernacle. He literally took up residence, as it were, in a tent. And I think John, as he's writing his gospel, and he writes this, and dwelt among us, is pointing back to the tabernacle. I think he is pointing us back to the exodus and the, the tabernacle that was there. Three main areas of the tabernacle. It's 15 by 45 feet long. 
There was the outer court, which was outside of that, which was used for what? Washing, cleansing yourself, and actually offering the sacrifices. But then, also, there's the outer room called the holy place, where you had such things as is the golden candlestick, the showbread, and, and all of that. But the third, the inner room, was what? The holy of holies. And you didn't just kind of breeze in and out of there as, you know, like you would any other room of the house, right? This was something that the high priest went into one time a year to first seek to atone, sprinkling blood on the, the, um, the seat and, and to um, atone for his own sins, but also the sins of the people, Everything about the tabernacle was symbolic of Jesus, the true tabernacle. Consider this. The tabernacle was packed up and set up during what? A wilderness journey. Jesus, while he was here, he was a pilgrim. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was a pilgrim. This world was not his home, to put it in another way. Jesus also had no stately form that we should notice him, Isaiah 53. And this tabernacle, as it was moved around with um, Egyptian pyramids, uh, not far from here in all of their grandeur, was simply a tent, man, it made out of animal hides, multicolored animal hides, and that's what it was, humble in appearance. It paled in comparison to the pyramids and other things in the world. But the tabernacle was also the center of Israel's camp, and especially the religious presence of God. The tribes encamped all around it, very methodically, as a matter of fact, three in each direction. So the 12 tribes were around it. The the Shekinah glory was there as the Lord would shine his glory upon it. And so too Christ and his embodiment is the center of everything for us as believers. Of course, John would say in chapter 3 and verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe in him is judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What an amazing thing, this whole incarnation, the whole timing and the fullness of time. And in a couple weeks, we're going to enter the year 2015 and the year of our Lord. Some 2,000 years after Christ has come, the whole world recognizes the significance of that event by the calendars that they use. Jesus was truly a man. Jesus got hungry. He got weary. He got thirsty. Actually, John develops this, especially through this gospel. You see in John 4, the woman at the well, he's thirsty. He's hungry at other times. In John 11, Lazarus has died. Jesus weeps. He enters in. He's moved with compassion. He truly was 100% man, yet all without sin. A sinless humanity is what was required for him to be a substitute for us, and he was the sinless one. 
He's the perfect one. He's the only one that ever looked at God's law and says, I love this standard of righteousness which is unchanging and I will keep it perfectly. He's the only one that was ever able to do that because he was not tainted by Adam's sin. So the tabernacle also symbolizes Jesus when you think the wages of sin is death and the tabernacle was what? The place where animals would be sacrificed one after the other, after the other, after the other. It was a very bloody, bloody scene. And you can imagine the odor with flesh and meat burning and, and the savoring sacrifice and, and, and going up to God. And so too Christ himself would be, not only is he our high priest, but he himself was the sacrifice to make this atonement secure to secure for all time. When he said it is finished on the cross, to secure for all time that our sins are forgiven, that he's paid for every last one of them. Uh, One of the commentators said, sin is not just a little dysfunction among ourselves. It is a violation of God's law and an offense to his perfect holiness. Sometimes when we think of these things and um, we can kind of, you know, minimize sin. It's just a little dysfunctional. I mean, I came from a dysfunctional home. You understand, so don't call me a sinner. No. We are sinners who violate God's law, who need a Savior to sin in our place. So we've seen the Word became flesh. Next, He dwelt among us, and now, and we saw His glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. Glory displayed. Children, think of it. You know, the young children, even Emily, you know, we're driving at night and lights, lights, all the, the, the wonderful beauty of, of all of these lights. And, and think of what the tabernacle was as God's Shekinah glory shined all around it at night. Speaking of lights, God was the center of the camp. And anything concerning Christmas is about Christ coming to rescue sinners. Yes, of course, he was a baby. He was a beautiful baby, but he was just like all other babies, probably a little wrinkly here and there. Uh, he went to the bathroom. He, you know, they, he ate. He, all of these kinds of things in his humanity were normal. When you think of this glory. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. As he sees this vision, this vision in which The whole temple was filling with smoke and the doorposts were shaking. And he sees the vision of Christ. We know that from John chapter 11, later in 11, uh, when he says that. But what does Isaiah say? Woe is me, I am ruined. Why are you ruined, Isaiah? (laughs) Because I have seen him. And with Jesus, he says, we've seen his glory. John sets the stage here right at the outset of his gospel, of how the glory is to be revealed. He mentions it in 15 to 18. We're going to look at it in just a moment. But, but think, just in chapter 2, remember what he does? Performs this first miracle, the wedding of Cana. Turns barrels of water into the best wine ever made. In chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not enough to, to do good works. You must be born again. Chapter 4, the woman at the well. Remember what he says. Uh, 
you know, if you, if you would ask of me the water that I should give, you shall never thirst again. The I am's of the gospel. I am the door. I am the way. I am the resurrection of the life. All of these things. And the very fact that Jesus himself during his earthly ministry forgives sinners. That's what made the Pharisees so hostile, so angry. Who can forgive sins but God? And that's what made them so angry. That's what made them begin to plot to kill him. But of course, this was all within the plan of God. The only begotten, it says, it's a, um, the word does not speak of a, person, a person's origin, but describing him as being unique, one of a kind, as it were. He's the only begotten. Colossians chapter 1, beautiful description of Christ one of which I'm sure you're familiar with. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions and rulers and authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And then notice this. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses used love to say that Christ was the first thing created, but he was created. He came into being. They go to Proverbs 9 and all this kind of thing. Right here, clearly, it says all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all those things. He can't be a thing. goes on to speak of how he's the head of the body, the head of the church, and that he's full of grace and truth. And then look at, look at the rest of the text here. Verse 15. John testified about him and cried out, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me has higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The idea of accumulated grace. Not that we accumulate grace to be saved, but grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson says the glory of God manifested in the incarnate word was full of grace and truth. And those two attributes most closely relate to salvation is grace and truth, and we need those two. Of course, the rest of the passage testifies to his person, uh, his provision, but then look in verse 18, this idea of revelation. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. The word here for made known is the word where we get exegesis, it's to expound, to um, open up, as it were, the scriptures to exegete. In other words, it's a word that's used to interpret things and most often interpret the Bible. John is saying that Jesus and his person and his deity and manhood wedded together as the word became flesh interprets, explains, exposits God the Father to us. Does that make sense? That's an amazing thing here. No one's seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, 
He is the one who explains God. That's why Jesus says to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? In John 14. So, in conclusion, let us focus on the right things this Christmas season. Let us be amazed at the mystery of the incarnation because if you are a child or daughter of God, you are a recipient of God's grace. He has come into the world, humbled himself to save you personally. Complete deity, complete humanity, born to die for sinners. God's plan of redemption goes back before the creation of the world. As he elected a people unto himself that he would adopt into his family, that the Son would come to to actually redeem and to purchase back and to release us from that slavery and bondage of our sin. You see, to the world, the idea of a cross and a, a Savior being crucified on a cross is a shameful thing, and in some ways it is shameful. I mean, it involves some of the cruelest torture known to man. It was a cursed death. Anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus himself being sinless and perfect, but he stood in our place. God is showing us, brethren, by that depiction of the cross and that way of salvation and the lengths that God had to go through, the shame that sin should bring to us. Jesus took all that shame upon himself, and he didn't deserve it. It wasn't his sin. It was our sin. And since the Son of God has died in this way, the cross displays the grace of God to sinners in a beautiful way. Those who have received Christ, as one man said, are called to worship without ceasing. Yes, The stated meeting of the church and worship services are primary. Yes, God meets with us in a very unique way during these times. But in a sense, and this is not a substitute for this, all of life is worship. You have your personal worship, day-to-day life. Look at all of life as worship, glorifying him, fellowshipping with him, and then to obey without hesitation to love without reservation, and to serve without interruption. In other words, make your life count for Christ. Putting him first in your life. Training your family, training your children in these things. What what do they see when they look at you, mom, dad? Somebody that just is more in love with a box that displays images through a cable wire or someone that's in love with God, not only because they see you reading your Bible as the primary source of revelation and information to you, but they see you putting that into practice. And not just in the church, but in the home and throughout the week, ministering to others and serving others. And if you're here today and you're not converted, that is, you have not been saved The best gift you could desire this Christmas is the gift of salvation and to cry out to God, the one who loves to give gifts, the one who, that where mercy is, is, he's full of mercy for those that will cry out to him. Ask that your sins would be forgiven. Ask 
that he might give you a new heart because your heart is corrupt and and stained, and, and no matter what you do, even your good works are stained, and, and they're bad works. They become works of liability, not assets. Humble yourself before him. Admit that you're a sinner. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son that died on the cross. Meditate on the love of God for sinners. Romans 5 and verse 8, familiar text. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means before in space and time, when Kurt Aaron came to Christ 26, 27 years ago, that you know, before I had even come to Christ, Christ had already died for my sins because I was elect. Even though I was living ungodly, it says a couple verses before, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's who he died for. So if you sit here today and say, well, wait a minute, I'm a good person, but maybe I'll take a little bit of Jesus. You know, you need to see yourself as ungodly as a violator of God's perfect and holy law, as one who will stand before that judge someday and answering for your behavior. And you children, some of you children, have heard the gospel presented again and again, and for some reason you think you'll live forever. There'll be another convenient time. When I'm in high school, well, no, now I'm in high school. When I'm in college, well, now when I'm out of college. Well, when I get older, no. Well, maybe when I retire, then I'll have time for the Lord. You see, that procrastination could land you into hell. We know not how many days and hours we have. We've lost, in the last six months, two dear members of this church to cancer, 147 and 156 years old. We know of young people who are dying all the time. As I mentioned before, one in our own school, a little six-year-old, You don't know how many days you have. Don't put it off. Come to the Lord. And for all of us, especially those who are in Christ, this is a promise for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I am convinced, that is, I am fully convicted about this, fully persuaded, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor any other thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what? That's a promise that we all know. It's a promise that we'll share with those who are struggling from time to time. But you know what? When you get a diagnosis that you have weeks or months to live, a promise comes alive. Maybe it was in black and white or maybe a dull color, but it comes in full color then, doesn't it? Oh, how we need to cherish the promises now. How we need to meditate on the promises now so we can navigate the deep and dark waters when they come. And Christmas time is a time to focus 
that where would I be if Christ had not come to rescue me? Oh, how I think Thanksgiving Day should be right after Christmas Day. <laughs> because in a way, this evokes such thanksgiving for what God has done. And I think our, either Deepu or Steve, one of the brothers mentioned that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the plan of redemption. We thank you for the salvation that your son has accomplished. We thank you that he became flesh and that he died in our place. We rejoice in our salvation, O oh God. We thank you that we're justified by faith alone. We thank you that we will be glorified someday and in your presence. Help us, Lord, in the meantime, to live our Christian lives in a way that is pleasing to you. Grow us in our sanctification, Lord, that we might bring glory to you. We might magnify you. That we might make much of Christ before a lost and dying world. Lord, we ask that if any here do not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.